atomic giants if occasion was a sweeping Japan nation when along came a dude with an ultra attitude, a common Morado, the greatest kicker of Japan. End of all, man. Last you short now, baby. To not talk big now, baby. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, back to a brand new episode of Kaiju Conversation Live. I'm your host, Elijah, and joining me for the second time, this is the first time I've ever had a guest on twice, so clearly I did something right when having him on the first time. We have Jack, a.k.a. G-Man, on. How you doing, guys? So, we're here for something that's kind of not what I intended Kaiju Conversation Live to be, because typically we do, like, these relaxed, like, no-topic conversations, but this was something that I felt necessary to do. Um, I, so, a little background, and then I'm gonna hand it off to you, Jack, so you can kind of give a little background here. So, I don't, I've... I've watched three Christopher Nolan movies in my life. All of them are the Batman movies. I'm a very basic Nolan fan, if you could even say that, because I don't even like those movies. But Rex, my co-host, texted me and said, I'm on my way to see Oppenheimer today. And I was like, wait a minute. Why have I not, like, I want to see this movie. It looks fantastic. The trailers look great. Like, why haven't I begun like watching the movie like what why don't i have tickets yet so he texted me and then i immediately went and bought tickets and then you were talking in our discord server that you're in and you said and i quote are you seeing it in imax and i went and refunded my tickets and went and bought imax tickets for the following day so i saw it opening night and i actually got some pretty good seats and prior to that, you you had seen it Thursday night, so you saw a preview. And you the way you talked about it, I was really interested and a little a little I was a little confused on on like how this film like did what it did for you to react that way. So I was going in kind of I, I was really curious. I was really really curious. And I was glued to the screen the entire time. And uh, I I would say that I had a Fableman's moment. For anybody who has watched the live streams and passed, or or has talked to me at least and, and has heard my thoughts, the Fableman's is probably one of the best films I've ever seen in my life. Um, that that that's a very personal movie for me. And Oppenheimer had the same effect on me. So I was like okay but even before that you and i talked about the film um i just wanted to hear your thoughts and i was like you know what we need to do a review we need to talk about this movie because it it, it's it's kaiju adjacent i i I use that in in very like you know i I hesitantly say that because I, i i feel like that's that's in a way devaluing the worth. I, I don't know if worth is the right term, but I feel like that's ignoring the f- film for what it is to an extent. 
to be perfectly honest, this film is is it's a film. It is a the definition of film, peak cinema. So for me, it was like, I mean, ignoring the fact that there's World War II, Japan, atomic bomb stuff. Like, I just want to talk about this. I just want to enjoy talking about this movie because there's this this movie does does a lot. So we're just going to be here. We're going to talk about the movie. This is a little more of a like we're, we're going to put thought and effort into the stream more so than than past streams where we just kind of relax and just talk about whatever and see where it goes. We're, we're going to first talk about the non-spoilery stuff, which is most of the film because it's, it's all it's a, you know, it's a historical film. Um, so we, we know we know bombs fell on Japan and we know we know Oppenheimer helped create the bomb and and scientists were involved and, and whatnot. So like I, you can't really spoil it in, except for the ending. The ending does do something to to make it to, to make a statement. It makes a statement to say the least. So we're going to talk about that and some other spoilers at the end or closer to the end of the stream. I don't know how long we're going to go. We're just going to we're going to talk until we've kind of hit all of our all of our notes and all of our thoughts. Now, I've only seen it once, but I know Jack here has has uh, came prepared. So I'm going to hand this over to Jack to kind of set establish his his stuff uh came prepared i don't know i've been spending too much time watching the movie uh uh i i saw it for the third time today and uh like you said i saw i saw the preview night thursday saw it yesterday and uh again today and i still don't feel like i have enough it it's it was i'm i you and i talked about it I felt like uh, uh, I felt like it was a drug that I just couldn't get enough in me. Uh, you know, it was it was. I sat there watching it, and and I I you especially I wanted you to see it on IMAX because I knew this picture would. It, it was designed to be just massive. And when I say that, you know, a lot of people say you know you have to see this on IMAX because it's a big action adventure. You know, there might be a a giant monster on it or uh you know it's it's a big disaster a big special effects movie and stuff like that this is this is a, a biopic it's a biopic drama shot like a horror epic and it really comes out with the whole IMAX experience and the sound and whatnot I mean I've seen it three times and each time there are moments that the sound makes me jump um and it it is very impressionable on me i it, this is one of those movies and it's been a long time actually since i've walked out of a movie somewhat speechless uh i could probably count on one hand where that's happened with me and even you know i don't i don't really review films anymore when i when i did write for uh, a city paper and some magazines and stuff. I was, uh, I was kind of, you know, they kept saying you have this word count to work with. You have to rate it or something like this. Um, 
and even with the freedom of just kind of doing a blog, I don't, I don't entirely know what to say about this just yet, which is going to make this conversation interesting. Uh, <laughs> I think a lot of people have said this is the culmination of Nolan's entire career and whatnot. I don't know. Maybe. Probably. Who knows? Uh, I, I will say this, though. It's a great film. Which seems just like, well, no kidding. But, like, I don't... I, it, it's so easy to be reductive in both praise and uh, in, in panning a film. And for something this powerful, and for something this... Uh, on this scale of of quality i don't i i just don't know <laughs> how to put it in words quite yet uh am i still in the honeymoon phase yeah probably definitely but you know so having seen it three times there's just not a whole lot i dislike about the movie either i think this picture is is you know it, it shook me you know, I walked out, and one of the first things I said is, I am shook. Uh, you mentioned the ending. Uh, the last two shots was enough to to uh, terrify me. I, I think, I think so I was talking with someone recently, and they said, uh, the, the last two shots made me sad. I was like, well, that's interesting, because the last two shots uh, made me scared. Re really, really felt horrific to me and i found it interesting that you know we had two emotions um maybe negative i guess from those last two shots and i recently read that nolan had and this means nothing to you elijah but i, I recently read that nolan compared the ending of this movie to the ending of inception and i was like Man, I want to sit on that for a while because uh, that that's very, very fascinating, especially considering, you know, coming home, driving back home tonight after uh, watching it for the third time. Uh, I'm sure there's something better I could be doing. I know there's something <laughs> better I could be doing, but I just can't. Um, and I, I all I could think of was, is this... Well, I don't want to get into it too much. We'll 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 dive into it with the spoilers, but it 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 sticks with you, most certainly. And the rest of the film, not to say that the whole movie is about the ending, that is not the case by any stretch of imagination. And the whole ending, you know, people uh, one of the one of the first things that a lot of people have asked in our circles has been like, you know. Oh, it's about the guy who made the bomb that you know dropped was dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. I'm like, yeah, that that happens in the movie. Like the event happens, but that's not what that's not what we're working here with. We're we're working with something even like the ramifications of the existence of what this man has created is something uh, the movie is is diving into on an even grander scale than that and it, it's interesting how his life at least the dramatization of the dramatization of this, his life here is you know 
exploding as well as as uh the ramification of the the existence of this weapon mm-hmm. has come to fruition and everything just everything just comes together so well and every shot every line of dialogue smart quick dialogue i might add um i think i think one of my favorite exchanges is when uh of dialogue my my conversations in the movie is when groves meets oppenheimer for the first time uh oppenheimer says um it's my job to tell you no oh so you have the job now i'm thinking about it you know everything in that scene just works beautifully and it it, it blew my mind that even the most simple of shots even an over the shoulder or medium shot can look just gorgeous in this movie just because of the depth of field and the the framing involved uh you know and and, and then there's the music by uh ludwig I, I i can never get his last name right can you can you have ludwig uh, let me i'm gonna i'm gonna look at his name anyone here who wants to correct me on that because i'm all for it i i'm gonna i'm gonna attempt this <laughs> But the music was fantastic. I'm I'm a big film film score buff, and um, I'll be honest, I haven't liked a whole lot of scores from this particular composer. He's he's done uh, you know the the Mandalorian. He's done I think he, uh, Black Panther. Uh, he did Tenant, and I didn't care for his score for Tenant either. Uh, but he he really grabbed me here. So Ludwig Garrison. Garrot. Garonson. I let you say that if Garonson? we need to for the rest of this cast. <laughs> but he, you know, uh, earlier in the movie, uh, someone asks Oppenheimer, can you see the music of of the uh, the universe unseen, of the, the quantum universe and whatnot? He said, yes, I can see it. And goes into this kind of like musical composition of, of, dancing light and particles and stuff like that uh cut in with him working and him exploring and learning more about it and that was just you know an amazing marriage of music and sound design with uh visuals gorgeous visuals that are not cg there were there are two movies that were uh released this year that delve into the quantum universe (laughs) <laughs> and I find this one infinitely more interesting <laughs> to both learn about and look at while watching watching these pictures. Um, that uh, not to give not to say that I've actually seen all of Ant Man three. I've only seen it in parts. Couldn't finish it. Stopped. So uh, it it's. It was something that that was just married together. All the components, all the parts were married in such wonderful sync that, you know, when you get to the last act, which I I wondered if the last act went on a little bit too long, but given all the twists and turns and high drama that happens in that last act, I'm fine with it. I have, you know, go. For, I I could rewatch that last act right now. Actually, in fact, Elijah, do you want to stop this cast altogether? 
<laughs> we'll meet up and we'll go see the picture again. I, I it, would love to. It's it's I'm going to see it for a fourth time. <laughs> I'm, I will say it right now. I'm going to throw money at this for a fourth time. I, I can't get enough of it. Um, and I, you and I also talked about this. This isn't necessarily about the film itself, but I'm I'm the Thursday night. I was surrounded by people in this IMAX. It, it was sold out. We were crammed in there. All right. Um, and everyone was into it. And everyone was glued to it. People were were gasping, and you know, some people were even like doing a little cheers when you know, uh, in the back half of the movie, when uh, certain events happen in Oppenheimer's favor. And after those last two shots happen, and we cu cut the credits, one uh, people started applauding. I have now seen this movie three times to packed sold out IMAX showings today. Even uh, I noticed people were trying to sneak in because they took my seat and my friend's seats. I said, Hey, these, these are, these are ours. And I'm like, Oh, and they get up and I, I watched them during all the trailers, try to, you know, sit down in different places, but people kept coming in and be like, you're, you're <laughs> in my seat. <laughs> um, sometime in the, in the, during the first act of the movie, someone walked in and he, he had a sling. Someone walked in. He just sat on the steps and watched the movie. No way he paid for a ticket. He just sat on the steps and was into it. And once again, for the third time in a row, uh, applause. Applause. I was in shock. This isn't a Marvel movie. This isn't a big IP action adventure or anything like that. This is just... It's a biopic. It's a, it's a biopic shot like a grand epic, but it's a biopic. And man, it just felt so good to be in a theater where people are so invested in a movie like this and are gasping and are applauding and are cheering uh, moments that in any other movie you, you wouldn't hear, audibly hear these reactions to. But it just felt so good that something of of such uh, a grand experience was was being uh, embraced like this in three showings, three showing through. I can't tell you the last time, if any time, I've seen the same movie in theaters three times, and people have applauded at the end of each showing. Yeah, see, it's it's funny you bring that up because. So when I went to see it, I, during the film, there were moments where I was like, I want to clap. Like there, there was moments where it was like, this is like mind blowing. And I, I was hearing people laugh at certain scenes and, and gasp and, and like feel emotion. And I was like, okay, so we're going to see what happens at the end of the movie. So where I live, nobody really claps. I, I've only been in the theater twice for a movie where people clap, and that was Spider-Man Far From Home and Avengers Endgame. And the people who clapped for Far From Home was like a, a small group of people that like sat in like the left side of the theater. They were all in a group of friends. And 
I I was like, I wonder what's going to happen next. What what am I what am I like waiting for? So the movie concluded, and I was like, I don't care if I'm the only one clapping. I don't care what what like I'm clapping. It, it was one of those things where it's like, I need to clap. Like this movie has made me feel so much. And I've been glued to the screen this entire time, all three hours and seven minutes. Like my, I, I, I never looked away from the screen. I don't know if I blinked. Like that was how like focused I was. And the credits started, and I started clapping. But other people, like it was, everybody was clapping. There was some cheering, and I was like, "This was such a it, it was a magical moment." Just being in in that room that was packed and people were clapping at this film that i still couldn't look away from the screen like the credits were rolling and my eyes just were glued i was reading every credit i i just i couldn't i couldn't fathom what i had just seen and i didn't move from my seat whatsoever like i i was just determined to just sit there and just soak in everything I had just seen. And I kept clapping. And I think I ended up being the last person clapping because like I just my brain like it it just I couldn't think. Like I was I was caught in the moment of of what I had just seen. So I, I can relate to you on on that level on on the the way that the the experience of going to the theater was. Yeah, and it's it was also it was just nice to have that experience with something other than a a big IP blockbuster. Not to disparage those, you know. I mean, we, I I've enjoyed, you know, I MCU's been the whipping boy for a lot of us, but you know, I like the MCU. I enjoyed the first Iron Man a lot. It's still my favorite MCU movie, and I think, you know, the culmination of what it, you know, uh led to with Avengers Infinity War and Avengers Endgame uh, was an incredible and, and successful experiment overall. You, you, you can't deny that. I mean, it, it really, it, it, the audience embraced it. Uh, a lot of people have come to love it. A lot of people have come to know a lot of these characters through these movies. And um, it, I think it did a good job of it overall. Uh, now we're, we're at a point where, well, we, we know the game. We, we, we get what it does. Um, we, we know how this is played. We know what to anticipate because we've already had it. And we're not entirely sure if the same thing will work twice for the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. And I think that's largely why we've seen a, a little more a little less interest in the MCU, a few more vocal uh, opponents of it and stuff like that, because, well, we had the MCU. It was fun at the time. We want something else. Now I'm all for, if the MCU bounces back, I'm all for enjoying it. Should it happen? But right now I'm, I'm really embracing the idea, the hope at least that some audiences want something else. Cause as I speak right now, Oppenheimer is, Number two at the box office, 
very impressive uh, given that, you know, its main competition was Barbie, a PG-13 movie that's shorter and a lot of people can more easily see because it's not R and uh, it has more showtimes because Oppenheimer's three hours long. You can't give that movie quite as many showtimes. And Oppenheimer still made 80, 81 million, 80 0.5 million i think it's 80.5 yeah 80.5 we'll see if that's adjusted anything by tuesday uh wow so it's only the fourth time in film history that two movies have opened on the same weekend and both have made over 50 million and it's the first time in film history that two movies have opened over 80 million in the same weekend which is I, I was telling somebody at uh, my my showing, I said, it's amazing because the theater was full of people for Oppenheimer and Barbie. Like, it was insane yeah. how <laughs> the theater was. And I, I told the guy who uh, was talking to me about Oppenheimer, I said, it's amazing to think just three years ago, we were all like, is the theater experience dead? Are we like AMC's going bankrupt? Like, is this the end of the theatrical theatrical experience? And and some some uh, analytics analytics people were were saying that it was, and a lot of people were like streaming's the future. But here we are, three years later, and this happens. Like this and and I, I told the guy I said the fact that I'm standing here in a theater at 10:30 at night and it is packed full of people happy cheerful buying popcorn like getting ready to go into a, a showing and we're all here to support like these movies and and enjoy them and then to hear that Oppenheimer does double what it was projected because it was projected 40 million if i remember right yeah 40 40 to 50 million um and it yeah <laughs> doubled that 40 million. and like that's that's like i love that because that just goes to show how many people were and were excited for this and like oppenheimer didn't have a lot of marketing like officially a lot of a lot of Oppenheimer's marketing came from from the joke of let's go see the double feature Barbie and and Oppenheimer the Barbenheimer kind of the joke that everybody was making and it's so amazing to see two films like completely different like you you couldn't get any more different do so well and and I I, I feel like this just shows that. The idea of the theater going experience will will not die for a very very long time because of these. I mean, I hope so. I hope so. I mean, we we have to kind of remember that Christopher Nolan's name carries a lot of weight. I mean, he's like an IP into himself. Uh, Barbie is IP. This is this has been come. This has been a long time coming. Um, but the fact that it is, you, you made a point that it is two very different films doing very, very well. And we as an audience really embrace that does say a lot because both these films did opened higher than fast 10 
uh, Transformers, Rise of the Beasts, uh, The Flash, uh, Indiana Jones, and uh, Mission Impossible. And Mission Impossible had like a 78 million domestic opening mm -hmm. over five days. Oppenheimer did 80.5 and 3. With competition from Barbie. You know, and, and I've, I've run into some people who are saying, well, the only reason that both did so well, especially Oppenheimer, is because of the, the Barbenheimer trend, the social media trends and stuff like that. I'm like, guys, there is no proof and has never been any proof that these social media trends really help that much. I'm sure it did a little bit, but we're, I don't think that's the reason Oppenheimer, uh, had an extra 40 million in the tank there's there's just no way you know it it's like i'm always reminded of and this isn't necessarily social media but i think the point stands in 2010 uh the what was it scott pilgrim mm -hmm. scott pilgrim versus the world had a trailer at san diego comic-con back then san diego comic-con was still huge mm -hmm. i mean like four to seven eight times the people who are there now are were, were there back then uh and hall h opened uh to the scott pilgrim panel and allegedly it was it had it got the biggest reaction at san diego comic-con bigger than any other movie comic book movie or whatnot that was the film that everyone was the most vocal about in hall h uh and and people thought, like, man, we got we got a hit here. We got we this is guaranteed slam dunk at the box office. I think it opened fourth or fifth. It bombed completely. I mean, it was one of the biggest bombs of the year. And it since then, both studios and box office uh, pundits have have been a lot more careful about putting that much stock into niche uh trends like comic-con or social media or you know hashtags on twitter and stuff like that i mean we all remember what happened when uh sony re-released morbius for a weekend <laughs> just because of social media trends i mean come on <laughs> so i I, my guess is that the the Barbenheimer craze probably added uh, revenue in the thousands, not the millions. More what I think the Barben craze uh, symbolizes is a an excitement to embrace something outside the IP that we have been uh, getting in recent years which is largely comic book superhero and like at this point like the 10th sequel to some long-running franchises and stuff not that like indiana jones is the 10th but the fifth in a very old franchise mission impossible 7 fast and furious 10 transformers 7 and you know i i kind of the mcu i kind of look at as a giant uh television show where every episode just happens to be like two two and a half hours long so <laughs> you can 
what they're on like the 30th episode anyway the fact that you know there was such great admiration for these two movies this weekend i think hopefully is symbolic of uh studios wanting to do different content i don't want to necessarily say original because barbie still pretty big ip oppenheimer still based on a book christopher nolan he's an ip himself uh but something a little bit different mm -hmm. and that that's an exciting prospect i think i agree and so speaking of different i think this is a great place to dive into our our kind of like we we've given our, our overall thoughts and, and our shared our excitement with how how oppenheimer and barbie ha ha have been doing i want to now dive into something that was a little different which for me at least it was different but oppenheimer's story the way the story is structured is so interesting and it's kind of like a murder mystery in the in the way it's structured because you gradually learn the facts as the story's told. And, and Nolan does a very good job at using visual aids to help tell the story. And I loved that. I loved the change between black and white and color. I loved... The, the way the story was structured I, I'm not I'm not one to like non-linear stories but I the way this story was structured made the three hour runtime feel shorter for me because I was so invested and I was asking so many questions in my head I never had time to stop and think man how long have I been sitting in this theater watching this movie what time is it? Is it, is it 1 a.m. yet? I, I never thought that. I was so busy trying to like follow the story and and understand. And I was so like just involved with the story that I I never thought how long has it been? Where are we at in this movie? Is it almost over? I never thought that. I never even thought, where's the bombings? What like when are we gonna get to the bombings? I was like I love I, I want to learn more. I, I want to get these answers. So I I loved the way this story was structured. And I know going in, you said to to not expect something linear. And I I, I think you were a little nervous that I wasn't gonna like that. The way at least that's kind of I thought you might I the way I understood it, you might have you you were thinking potentially that I I might not be able to follow or maybe I, I wouldn't I wouldn't like how nonlinear was and, and all the questions that I would have to ask that that like made it so much more interesting and just it involved me with the plot so much and I I, I loved I love the story for this movie yeah I think when I talked to you about it I. I was just afraid because you mentioned that you've only seen so many 
Christopher Nolan movies, largely the Dark Knight trilogy, which I adore wholeheartedly. Uh, but it, it did occur to me that the only only film in the Dark Knight trilogy that's really told out of order is Batman Begins. Uh, and even then, after at some point in the movie, it kind of normalizes to like one you know linear piece of storytelling. I would say most of the other movies Chris Nolan has done are very non-linear. And he, he once said something in an interview that, what was it? He said, I've realized he, something that like he, he realized that if he told the audience something just one time, it would be enough. Whereas he, if he, 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 he was redundant about something, it would become uh, unnecessary. And the audience would kind of be like, okay, yeah, we've, it almost confused them hearing the same thing twice uh, in different ways. Nolan has an absurd amount of trust in audience intelligence. Mm -hmm. I would argue sometimes too much, but he, he has an, an amazing amount of trust. He, he doesn't think his audience are idiots, um, which is evident because he made the movie Tenet. Um, and... As such, and I this isn't to say I think you're an idiot, but it, it, as such, I can find that sometimes his shifting uh, into different moments in time can lose people because he's so confident that people will follow it. Mm -hmm. uh, and we jump all over the place. I mean, if you're not paying attention to the dialogue and the setting or when something's black and white or not, uh, you you're going to be lost because he's quick about it. He is real quick about it. Uh, and even, even me the, on the, upon the first viewing, I, I couldn't quite get the timeline just right. Like there were, uh, there were some conversations uh, that were going on in the film that I thought were happening at a different point in time. And upon seeing it two more times, uh, I've realized, Oh, this, it happens earlier or something. Um, and I, the fact that we have basically multiple stories going on at different points in times, and it keeps cutting back and forth to these points, especially when some of the drama drama is, uh, going on a crescendo really adds to the kind of epic feel. You almost feel like you're, you're in an action sequence or a giant battle or something uh one thing in particular i loved I, I don't think this is a spoiler but i i loved how we kept going back and forth between the oppenheimer hearing and the strauss hearing mm -hmm. uh towards the end and you know we have strauss giving this like impassioned uh belligerent speech and we have oppenheimer um being basically interrogated and it's just going up and up and up and up and up and they keep cutting back and forth faster and faster and faster and the music is crescendoing and we get some stylized directorial decisions in there that I don't want to bring up just quite yet and I, I it, it was it was like we are being assaulted <laughs> by a two dramatic points in time and it helped our investment. It, we, we, you know, it, it was 
shot and edited in a way that you know might as well have been a car chase and i was on the edge of my seat it it, it worked it really worked and it, for me i like movies that i can go back to i like movies that have a lot of meat in it that that uh demands me to rewatch it if there's not a whole lot in there if there's just kind of a lot of fluff um i i tend to not go back to it quite as often um but if there's something in there that i feel i may have missed or that i can just continue to understand better and better upon multiple rewatches then i'm going to go back to it it's got me and this is one of those movies and i and, and I think that's one reason why I want to keep watching it and keep going back to see it is because I still feel like there's stuff I've missed or I still feel like there's dialogue I've missed that would make some things clear. Or I still feel like I've missed some, some uh, piece of the puzzle that really makes the themes clearer and stronger and whatnot. And, and that for me is exciting for future uh viewings of the film you know i i'm excited to continue to re-watch it now because what am i going to find what am i going to unearth you know there's a lot of movies out there that i watch over and over and over and over because i think maybe there's something i missed i'll tie this back into like some kaiju stuff since this is technically a, a kaiju conversation right uh 54 Godzilla 1954 I rewatched that actually a lot because I think there are some nuances uh some bits of dialogue uh some ways that characters interact with each other touch each other don't touch each other um that have a lot to do with the time period the culture the themes and I like going back and and seeing if it's still there, if I missed it or experiencing it and whatnot. Same thing for this movie. There's a lot going on and something with so much uh, gravitas I would hate to miss. Mm -hmm. And that's art, I guess, is something that you can just keep going back and learning. Absolutely. See, what you brought up on the edge of your seat and that was something that I, I I called Rex after the after my showing. Granted, most of the time I was silent because I, I didn't know what to say. But I in the theater, I remember like there were moments where I was I was leaning forward and there were moments that I like got on the like I was on the edge of my seat. I was like, where are we going? Like what? I was so invested with it that I was like I. I had to be as close as possible. Like I had to, I had to be in the moment. I had to be there. And it was so almost surreal because it's hard for me to get that invested into a movie that I'm like, I need to be there. I need to be in this moment. And honestly, that's, that is, that's, Part of the magic of the movies is, is being able to put yourself in that world, whether it's an alternate world, like an alien planet or an alternate time, like in the 40s or in the future or on a different continent, like 
the, the fact that I was able to put myself like I was, I was, I felt like I was there watching it all unfold. Just it, it was a very surreal part of this film for me. And I remember, I remember just, just watching it. And it, to my understanding, the, the stories are the development of the bomb kind of being told in flashback while Oppenheimer's being interrogated and kind of explaining everything while Strauss is is doing his hearing, I believe, after the interrogation. I believe. Yes, yes it was after. And then you have certain moments that they they take place after the events of the of the uh flashback if you will but they occur before in the movie and and we're talking about the op- I'm talking about the opening with uh Albert and Oppenheimer and <laughs> your reaction uh so this is also being recorded for the podcast Jack's reaction right here just like that sells everything. Um, I know. Like, <laughs> can I? Can I at least tell? All right. Before you continue, what was the thing I asked you to do? <laughs> so, and I remembered was, this. Yeah, I remembered it. I was like, okay. Jack said, "Keep questioning why Albert looked the way he did at Strauss." Einstein, Albert Einstein. Einstein yeah. Yes. And I was like, okay, okay. So I watched the sequence and I was like, wow. What, like, what did he say? I was like, was it something like, did Robert like insult him? Did Oppenheimer insult him? Is it Albert Einstein and and Strauss have a history that's not good? Like what? I was like, what is this? What's this element? And when that moment (laughs) Fine, like I, we might need to start getting into spoiler territory. I don't know. I, <laughs> so my my goal is at the hour mark. So we're about we are about oh we're about yeah forty seven minutes in. So at the hour mark, we're gonna go into spoilers. So for anybody listening, that's the plan. And for anybody listening to the podcast version, that's the plan. So once we hit an hour. We're we're not going to beat around the bush. We're we're going to go straight in. We're gonna we're we're gonna we are going to dive into what makes this film honestly one of the most thought provoking movies I have seen in a long time. Um, but the the story like I, for me it was unconventional. It was an unconventional way of telling a story, and I loved. Like this film, it's funny because the only reason we really got this movie the way we did is because Warner Brothers turned their back on theaters. I, I got to talk about this because this is the greatest, <laughs> like the greatest screw you and the history of screw you's in the film industry. So Nolan, who is like established with Warner Brothers says i'm done with your company and moves to universal so now i'm gonna i honestly like i i can't i came to this realization universal has produced honestly some of the best films in the history of cinema 
I mean, they have Nolan, they have Spielberg, like those two are like honestly, I, I want to watch more Nolan now because of Oppenheimer. Like I, I will watch more because of Oppenheimer. But it was like while watching it, I was I, I came to that realization because both the Fablemans and Oppenheimer are some of the only movies to leave me speechless. So it was great to see Nolan like with this film from Universal. This was his first uh Universal film since he left Warner Brothers. And it was it was just great to see Nolan have the ability to to have that creative flow. Universal clearly knows they have a gold mine of creativity. And I love that. And they they it's obvious they let him do what he wanted. And I think that gives the film so much. It, it gives the film a voice that is very loud, very clear, and very concise. And before we, we keep going here, Michael, Michael Hamilton wanted to just say that Jack is giving off Surfer Chad energy. <laughs> Thanks. I'm actually, uh, I'm growing it out for uh, the beach, actually. So that works. Sorry, Michael. I won't be, I won't be keeping it for uh, minus one. Maybe it'll grow back out by then. I don't know. We'll see. So I... I, I really want to go into the spoilers, but we still got about 10 minutes. So, well, I mean, we, we were talking a little bit. One thing I, I did want to add about um, the narrative structure, the nonlinear storytelling. I just wanted to add, and I, I told you this before, uh, Tarantino once criticized biopics, a lot of biopics these days, for, you know, spending too much time going through a person's life. You know, this person was born on a rainy, thundery day. And, you know, in that moment, he was fated to become a great physicist or something like that. You know, kind of that stuff. And and Tarantino always said, and I, I kind of learned to agree with him. He said, don't do that. <laughs> Just isolate the point, the uh, a, a point in time, a stretch in time that was the most important of this person's life and dramatize that, you know, make that the, the heightened drama that we need to know. Don't try to dramatize uh, a, a non-fictional character being born and uh, fate him with, you know, the soon to be task of creating the nuclear bomb. It's not, let's <laughs> not, let's not do that. Let's just go straight into Here's where it kind of started and go from there. And I, I really appreciated that this movie, you know, this movie at some point, he tells us where he was born, where he's from and stuff like that. We don't see it only because that wasn't the most important information to see. It was exposition that, but it was like throwaway exposition. It just gave us an idea of where he's from and, you know, why he goes back to where he does uh, in New Mexico. So, I really loved the fact that this movie, basically, this movie didn't Forrest Gump Oppenheimer. 
that's kind of a term I've been using lately. They, it didn't force Gump. It didn't start the very, very beginning and dramatize childhood, teenage years and whatnot, going all the way through uh, the Manhattan Project. And it honestly, it didn't go that far into the future either. We see a glimpse of his future. I don't, don't want to bring that up just yet. We see a glimpse, but it doesn't go too much into it. That That glimpse was only because of uh, something another character says. And it was it was really refreshing to see a non-Force Gumped. Uh, and I want to make clear, I know Force Gump was not a real person, I think. And... Uh, <laughs> but a lot of biopics are structured the same way as as that film. And they don't need to be. <laughs> This film did it great. And it, it probably did something that a lot of biopics don't do was not just nonlinear storytelling, but just scattered storytelling just all over the place. We are constantly cutting to, you know, if this is the timeline, we're right here, but then we're right here, but then we're right here, then we're back here. Then we're, you know, it, it doesn't, there, there's no real consistency other than dramatic consistency. Right. And that the whatever we're cutting back and forth from and to is dramatic to the themes and uh, the point in the movie that climaxes the drama. Right. And that's what was most important. And, you know, speaking uh, on the drama, I, so I avoided most of this film's like press. I had seen the countdown trailer, which is what sold me. That, that countdown trailer that was on that live stream is probably one of the best trailers I've ever seen. Um, and, and I chopped that up to the sound design. And the sound design in this movie, like people said Tenant had some good sound. And I've heard it also had a horrible sound. It depends. Like Some people like it, some people don't. But for me, Oppenheimer is like if... And, and, and really, like I want to say this, awards don't matter. They really don't. Not 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 for a film like this. Like it doesn't need to prove itself. But if this film does not get nominated for an Oscar in sound design, I I I don't know what what the Academy expects. Like this film is very intense. It's very it's stressful, and and that kind of mirrors <laughs> it mirrors like the the scenes like the the quick cutting. The, the subjects of, of the interrogation and the trial and, and the flashback sequences, everything's so stressful. And we're, we're kind of put into the mind of, of Oppenheimer for a lot of the film. And it's obvious that there's a lot going on. And I love the fact that the sound complements that. The sound makes that all the more relevant and i don't i don't know if if i've seen another movie that had the impact the sound did for this one for me like the score is a different story score is like i'm not even talking about music i'm just talking about the sound design of the movie itself no music just dialogue the sound effects and what that brought to the table. 
And I, there's a specific sound that I told you about that you said everything, like when you see it or when you hear it in the movie, it's, it's going to kind of blow you away. And when, and I'm specifically talking about in the countdown trailer, there is a sound that is very fast, very loud. And that's honestly, like, if I'm going to be honest, the one thing that sold me about this movie was that sound. That single sound is what made me say, what is this? When can I watch it? Because that one sound made that trailer horrifying to me. Can I ask what, uh, what your thoughts were when you realized what it was? <laughs> At first, I was like, no, no way. Like, really? I, I I was a little disappointed, but then that disappointment went away when I realized that it wasn't what I expected, mm -hmm. but it made it more scary. It, it, like, it made perfect sense. This, this may be our first spoiler conversation in, oh, about... Two minutes here minutes. <laughs> i honestly i i kind of just want to dive right into it like well, let's do it because i think i think that the scene that we're kind of beating around right now is one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie maybe my favorite scene i don't know okay I, so i'm gonna if you're watching the stream we i'm just gonna we're in the spoiler section we yeah. We're entering the spoiler section because I, I, I have to talk about this because this scene. I think this was when I was so far gone with reality. Like I didn't realize <laughs> like I, I honestly forgot I was in the theater. I forgot that I was watching a movie. I was so. I, I it was hypnotic that that's how much the sound was. So after the bombing. After the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, obviously America is happy. You know, the war is over. But the film talks about, or it 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 it, it brings up the heavy weight that that had on Oppenheimer. Like he just killed thousands of people. That that's kind of how we viewed that. But he has to give a speech. He he has to lift up his crew, his team for what they just did. They just won the war. The war of all wars. Like World War II was the nastiest war of all of them. And they just won. They just finished it. That team of people successfully ended the war. But Oppenheimer didn't view it necessarily like that, at least in the film. And so as he's walking into the it's a gym, it's a gym as as he's walking into this gym. The sound of the cheerful soldiers and scientists and wives. They're pounding their feet. They're clapping their hands. And in a very artistic fashion, like it, it's not realistic 
that everybody would fall in unison, but it doesn't happen. It, that is that is the beauty of the art. And all of their feet begin in unison. And the sound echoes in Oppenheimer's head. And my anxiety went up when 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 as he's walking to you know give his speech the sound gets more intense and as he gets up to to the podium he's just entrapped by by this sound and you can in the background and there's there's a few visual uh things like this where the background becomes blurred and it starts shaking like he in a way i i kind of viewed it as he's losing touch of reality because he gets stuck in his head and the echoing of the foot stomps and whatnot echo and he doesn't know what to do because on one hand he has to you know celebrate they won the war but on the other he just helped kill thousands of people thousands of innocent I don't know. I don't know if I can articulate just exactly how intense and amazing this film, this scene in this film is. I think the way it climaxes is it it definitely begs to be studied as a scene. Uh, because, you know, as it climaxes, we see a white light as if a bomb is dropped. And this is not actually happening. Of course, it's all in his head. Maybe. Maybe it's all in his head or maybe it's just a dramatic interpretation of how he feels like a bomb dropping on him or he feels the weight of the deaths or the... maybe he doesn't necessarily feel the weight of the deaths. Maybe he feels the weight of the world he has changed. Um... But there's a white light. We have a brief glimpse of one of the wives or whatnot with, like, skin melting off her face a little bit. Um, and after after he delivers the speech, he's walking away, and he, he feels like he steps in something. And he looks down, and it's the charred body of someone who has uh, died from the heat blast. And as he continues to walk, he sees, you know, a variety of things. He sees two people making out under the uh, uh, under the stands of the the gym. He sees another couple. They're crying and whatnot. And he exits. He sees someone who's puking outside. Um, and then you see kind of the windows. And it's kind of hard to tell, but are people cheering? Are they wailing? Are they? It, it, the sound design kind of tricks you. It could be cheering. It could be wailing. It could be some sort of. I almost got a, a a weird, you know, sense of like is is an orgy going on in there or something like that. Not not in the sense that like it's actually happening, but is is it like a? Are we supposed to get the ideas? The idea that the people in there who helped him create the bomb are these you know magnificent 
sinners or something like that in a gym or in a church-like area that are kind of, you know, doing a, a mass deed, it, it, it's, it's unclear. Not that any of this is literally happening, but it feels like it's, it's a amalgam of emotions that have uh, transcended the norm and kind of manifested themselves into the movie. And that's, that's what gets me about this scene is that there are so many ways to look at this. There's so many, you know, theories and, uh, ideas you could like toss into a conversation about just this one scene, just this one scene. And again, it's, it's another example of sound design music in this case, the lack thereof, because knowing where to put music and where to not put music is a huge part of, you know, why any movies work. Certainly this one, um, the cinematography, you mentioned, you know, the, the background kind of pulsing behind him, uh, it, it all comes together. That scene alone could be just be a, a short film, yeah. like a proof of concept or something like that. And, and it, it stands on its own as an incredible example of the tedious anxiety that this movie kind of gives off. Right. And in a way, I, I kind of felt like this scene kind of echoed the quote. He, he does say part of the quote earlier in the film. Um, and, and this is a quote that Kaiju fans will know from, from the 2014 trailer. Now, in, in the actual recording, minus the now I've become death, the destroyer of worlds, minus that part, he mentions how uh, uh, I believe it's something along the lines of some uh, I, I I know it by heart, but now I can't think of it. Few people laughed, few people cried, many most were people were silent. Mm -hmm. I remember the Bhagavad Gita, a scripture from the Bhagavad Gita where Ishmael persuades uh yes. the prince to do his duty, and in doing so, he takes on this multi-armed form and says Come death, destroyer of worlds, and in you know, a way, we're, we're all kind of waiting for him to say that in the movie, right? It's yeah. like, <laughs> and he does say that when the bomb goes off, but in a way, I feel like he says that in this scene, but he doesn't actually say it because some people are laughing, some people are crying, some people, many are silent, like we don't hear them, and you know, deep down, he's thinking. I have just unleashed the most destructive weapon on earth. I have become the destroyer. I mean, they say that there's a, there's a almost 0% chance that the bomb could absolutely destroy the entire world. All right. Let, let's sit on that one. That's, <laughs> okay. So there's, there's a moment in the movie and, and they never forget. They never let this go. It all, they always kind of circled back to it for reason. Um, there's a moment where they thought that they could ignite the atmosphere and destroy the planet. And supposedly, you know, 
depending on even today, depending on how big of a bomb we make, which according to this movie and according to everything else I've read, and I'm not a expert, but good heavens, I don't think I want to be the more I look it up. Um, you know, there, there's no limit to how powerful we make these things. Scary. Terrifying. Um, but if that's true, is there is there a point where we can actually ignite the atmosphere? Because the chance is not zero. <laughs> yes. But almost. <laughs> and, that's, and that's horrible. Um, <laughs> oh, my gosh. I, like, that was one of the points in the movie where they said that we might ignite the atmosphere and destroy the world via calculations. That was a point in the movie where my jaw just dropped. They dramatized that so well. <laughs> like, this is a fear. This could happen. Um, and even right before, just moments before they actually detonate, uh, uh, go through with Project Trinity, Groves said, hey, what did that guy mean out there about, uh, <laughs> you know, atmospheric ignition? Oh, oh, well, earlier on, there was a point where we thought that, you know, we might destroy the world. Yeah. And and it's like, wait a minute, what? Like <laughs> they never told Groves this. <laughs> he goes, Yeah, but the chances near zero. And I, I love Matt Damon. Man, mm, he you know, near zero? He has what do you expect on theory alone? Zero <laughs> would be good. And we all laugh at this, and I, I laughed at this, but I'm laughing out of discomfort, really, because right. like, oh my god, you know, we we willingly hit the button on this thing, multiple of these things, knowing that yeah, it's almost zero, but there's still a possibility. <laughs> um, and then that goes all the way back to, of course, the ending of the film, which we have beaten around the bush a lot during this conversation. Uh, I I almost don't know if we should talk about that yet because that that is like that part of the movie. Just nightmare inducing. It it is the biggest it's honestly one of the scariest things I've ever seen in well, like I said, it was framed as like a like an epic horror, right? Um, and it's funny because like we we don't see very long glimpses of these could bees and would bees in the movie, or even glimpses of the the uh, quantum universe as as Oppenheimer sees it. But what we do see is so good looking and so beautiful and so fascinating. You know, it, if this is what, when he studies this stuff, if this is what he sees, it almost makes me go, oh, yeah, I want to be a quantum physicist. I wouldn't want to be a quantum physicist. But but the fact is, it is that's how he, the character, sees it. Right. And that's what made him so uh, enamored with the study of it. Right. So It's... It's in in a way, and and I I can I'm all about films, so I think about movie, the way Oppenheimer sees the quantum 
like realm, I guess, if, if we're going to, if, if we're using Marvel terms, is kind of how Spielberg saw the train wreck in World's Greatest Story. Like it, it was embedded in his head. Yeah. In a way, I feel like both Oppenheimer and the Fablemans are kind of the same story, but on two different like playing fields of, of destiny in a way or appreciation yeah like like it's it's they both see an art there that they can tackle mm -hmm. right and they do via through through whatever tragedy and <laughs> hardship that comes their way yeah. uh interesting parallel so but, yeah it's it, hmm. Here's okay. We're in the spoiler discussion. Here's something I think needs to be brought up. Strauss, Louis Strauss, because we are, you know, everyone loves Robert Downey Jr. I love Robert Downey Jr. Um, I was blown away by how he looked in this movie. Yes, I was blown away by his performance in this movie, uh, and I was. Not necessarily in shock, but in some sort of like glee over how they handled the twist that he's kind of the villain here. Right. Or he's the movie's framing him as that to, as an antagonist to Oppenheimer out of what? Pure jealousy out of uh, vindictive jealousy because Oppenheimer made him look bad uh, years beforehand. And. I love the uh, oh, what was Aldrich's character? Um his name the one that was kind of a liaison the lawyer for, what now was the lawyer right yeah <sighs> played by played by young han solo uh well let me pull it up real quick here but the way and what i love is his you think scenes. after watching it three times <laughs> his, his scenes with strauss you kind of learn as Aldridge's character learns. Mm. Like, no, he doesn't have a name. I love that. Actually, I, I love yeah. that. Senate aide to Louis Strauss. <laughs> Senate aide. We'll call his, him Senate. <laughs> his character is like, in a way, he's the audience. Yeah. Yeah, well, there's so many of the audience members applauded or laughed at his lines because that towards the end there when Strauss says Oppenheimer should be thanking me, and then the aide says, "Well, he's not." <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> and everyone laughs. Um, yeah, yeah, and he was just as surprised as the audience was when Strauss ended up being the one proverbially, you know holding the knife not caught holding the knife but holding the knife that you know ruined oppenheimer's credibility and made sure he was no longer part of the security council um mm, he and, and what gets me is how petty he is about all this he he, he did this to oppenheimer um not necessarily for political gain but to just because he was he was petty and vindictive, he didn't like that Oppenheimer made him look bad. 
He he just didn't he he didn't like it. And so he plays this long con, convincing Oppenheimer that he's kind of on his side, even though both he and Kitty, his wife, know deep down that Strauss is behind all this. And he, he plays this long con. He tricks even the aide for why? Just to just to show how smart he is once the aide realizes that he's been ahead of the, the, the curve the whole time. And uh, is so upset. And he brings this up at the very beginning. He says, I wish I knew what Oppenheimer said to Einstein in, uh, uh, that uh, soured him on me. He keeps bringing up how Oppenheimer forced Einstein to not like Strauss the entire time. He is so petty. He is so he is all about this like I have political power. I'm doing this for political gain. Yada yada yada. I'll give you another Godzilla parallel since we're in kaiju conversations. In the original film, in Godzilla, there is the the diet building meeting where uh two different groups end up in an argument about whether or not they should make the existence of Godzilla public because they don't want to, you know, cause uh, damage to international relations because Godzilla was awoken by the atomic bomb. You know, bringing radiation, the atomic bomb into the discussion that that could make things a little tense. Later on in the movie, we see Godzilla attack the diet building and walk straight through the exact wing where they are having that conversation. Politics doesn't matter to him. It doesn't matter if you're going to argue about this. It doesn't matter about you know international tension or whatnot. What he is and what he stands for is here to remind you and kill you. And it doesn't matter, you know? And then you have Strauss in, in uh, Oppenheimer. And he is so self-absorbed about his career and about being liked by these scientists that he he thinks it's all about him. He thinks it all revolves around him and his career and his politics. And at the tail end, the aide, you know, tells him maybe Oppenheimer didn't say anything about you to Albert Einstein. Maybe they were talking about something more important. And he opens the door and, you know, Strauss has to like take on his loss because he 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 was he was going to be his his entire hearing was to uh potentially be part of a, a cabinet member but none of the scientists in the country liked what he did to oppenheimer so he didn't get the job he didn't get the position um and that was his that was his defeat in the film and when as he goes out to the press to accept his defeat uh the aide reminds him or don't remind them, the aide puts him in his place. Maybe they weren't talking about you at all. At all. Showing just how small he is and how small he is compared to the entire, you know, theme of the movie <laughs> that he just right. didn't get. Right. So. And, and I love the fact that throughout the film, we, you know, initially his aide kind of is on his side, very clearly is on his side. And as his aide starts to learn about what he's been doing behind the scenes, he kind of turns on him. 
like you can tell in how how the actor's facial expressions are there he's starting to question if if he's making the right decision and it's such a like and there's no dialogue that suggests that a lot like all of it is in his facial expressions and th this film is full of amazing acting there is not a bad actor in this movie i was shocked how every supporting character every main character every every actor and actress in this movie a comp like Downey does not seem like Robert Downey Jr. I love that. Um, Rami Malik. Do you think? Do you think because of the story, the director, the importance of the themes and uh, the talent on display, all these actors? came in to bring their a game because they just knew how important this project was you know that's a great question and I, I don't know like it's so weird that this movie has some of the best acting i have ever seen well and you could you know even the tiniest roles in this movie they all act like they're some of the best actors in the world they carry themselves with that conviction and i'm just like what kind of locker room pep talk did they get from nolan for this movie <laughs> jesus you're absolutely right like and you know i i'm just gonna keep bringing up the academy awards because i i like that's how amazing is like all these actors deserve that that award like th there should just be best like cast. ensemble yeah best ensemble <laughs> cast and they should all win. Like, it is remarkable how amazing everybody is. Everybody takes this very seriously. Everybody knows their role. Everybody, like, even Rami Malek, who has a pretty low-level, like, role in the film, like, knocks it out of the park. Matt Damon oh. knocks it out of the park. And and Matt Damon, I, I've loved his... his acting since like ford versus ferrari like he did an amazing job in that film and he brought that back and it might have even been better to be honest like it just it, it blew me away how how amazing everybody was and to your point about rami malik i mean rami malik got the uh you know, I, I saw him in the film earlier on. I was like, wow, he really they really cast Rami Malek in like a nothing part. And then here comes the climax. And he's the one who actually uh, delivers the, the the death blow to Strauss's cabinet position. And I was like, didn't see that coming because <laughs> he and he owned it. Gosh, he owned it. Uh, he was very, very. Uh, th there's a moment where Rami Malek. Uh, one of one of the uh, one of the staff asks him a question, and it's it's almost like he he didn't catch it, he didn't hear it, and he has a pause. And he goes, "I'm sorry, say again, please." And then they ask question again. It was it was so real, it felt so natural, but I it almost feels like something the actor did, not you know. Yeah, it, absolutely. <laughs> it's, 
And, and it was so satisfying because he seemed so timid throughout the movie to watch him come in and essentially sledgehammer Strauss like that was, <clears throat> you know, I keep comparing this to like, you know, epic action flicks and stuff like that. This was Rami Malek's epic action uh, death blow to the villain. <laughs> You're was, absolutely right. It was so good. And, you know, I just like that, that moment, that was a moment my jaw dropped. I wasn't expecting that when, when he spoke up and he said what I said, what he said, my jaw dropped and I wanted to clap. I like, I like ever just my whole body filled with like kind of like the, uh, captain america lifting thor's hammer like that that payoff and what's funny is like i have no attachment to this character he was in the movie maybe five minutes but when he comes in and and delivers that blow it just it shook me it it just i i i had and that's that's the word, Elijah. It, it, it shook. I am shook is what, you know, I walked out and I said that. I'm like, oh. and, and that's one reason is because so many things came out of left field, but was so natural and honestly set up for that stuff too. We just, I, we didn't know it at the time. It made such an incredible impact. Um, I'll tell you, we, we talk about jaw dropping moments. You know, earlier in the film, when they're they're almost they've almost completed the bomb, and after they've dropped it, Oppenheimer tries to convince scientists and uh, the war secretary that you know if we drop this bomb once, if we make an example out of it, it will create everlasting peace for the entire wor world. No one will ever want to, you know go to war knowing that these things exist. I don't know if in reality he actually believed that. I don't know if he actually believed that in the movie. But it seems in the movie that he really he he had to convince himself of that. And it was jaw-dropping and heartbreaking towards the end. And I I spoke about this earlier when we were talking about non-spoilers. Towards the end when he's in the conversation and uh he's in he's in his hearing and once again, a bright light is shining on him as he's being berated. Uh, and, and they ask him, when did he have ethical misgivings for the bomb? And he said, when I realized that we would actually use these things. And that was a turning point for him because he, he beforehand, he thought... No one would dare use these things if they saw how destructive they were. But now he realizes that we would. And that is disheartening. It's sad. And it's terrifying. It's still terrifying today. Uh, and, and that gets into the larger theme of the movie and whatnot. You know, Strauss was so obsessed with himself, he didn't even understand the movie's themes. He should have been watching it. He didn't even understand the movie's themes 
the overarching theme that it wasn't about him or political gain or pettiness or people liking him. It was about what humanity could do with these weapons. And by the end of the film, I'm sitting here thinking, I'm kind of terrified. Mm, scratch, not kind of. I'm terrified of living on a planet where these things still exist. And the movie did its job. It didn't glorify the bomb. It didn't um it didn't preach to us either. I think I think a lot of the fear uh that the film bestows upon me and the audience was strictly uh visual and far from preachy. And I, I've mentioned this before. This was not a PSA, this wasn't propaganda. Uh, it was, it was about a man's fear. A lot of people's fears, actually, a lot of people were fearful of this. It's about fears, um, being projected onto us. And once sitting with us is a stark reality. And that's when you realize the look on Einstein's face at the end is uh is really the the perfect expression of fear and pain and hopelessness and disheartenment uh about the topic and i i i want to touch on something because i know there was some some concern that the film would glorify the bomb glorify the government or the army or or oppenheimer or like it, it but what i appreciated is the film didn't like you said it didn't preach but it gave us the facts it gave yeah. us both sides it talked about how it would end the war and then we found out like other things like the the like it would end the war but you know it it doesn't pick a side it doesn't pick a side. It just tells you how the story went. Right. And I loved that. I loved how Nolan didn't feel like he had to make a stance on, on, on the subject. The, it feels very much a... And he does this. There's objective and subjective moments in the film. That's what the, the black and white and the color is supposed to represent. So there is not a moment where he makes a subjective opinion objective. He, he makes it very clear, quite literally very clear, like what, what is fact and what isn't, but he doesn't say it's fiction either. He, he, he tells it as it is. He's yeah. not saying this is, the, the bottom line he's just saying this is how it was yeah well and and i do want to bring up i, I want to be careful about you know saying that everything in the film is fact and whatnot just because right. i'm sure plenty was dramatized and and whatnot i think i know what you're trying to say though and i i think what it is is that it it never really decides to pick a side right on any subject you know we we get into you know communism and you know communist ideas but then you know soviet communism and the difference between the two and stuff like that none of that 
is trying to convince the audience of anything it's simply you know it's simply making a, a comment about who these characters who these people are mm -hmm. you know uh I, it, nolan has always been fairly i don't want to say apolitical that's not the case he's not apolitical but he's fairly neutral because again he trusts the audience to make a you know to figure things out themselves to make an informed decision themselves mm -hmm. i don't think he's ever tried to sway the audience one way or another uh it, he he's fairly neutral about it just putting out there what history has has given us more or less and dramatizing it and then letting the audience decide you know good and bad i don't know I, I i thought it was very very interesting that in the film uh oppenheimer was convinced that the bomb being dropped on nagasaki and hiroshima was to end the war yes finitely uh now i yes it, he it, if the bomb wasn't dropped uh a lot of american gis would have lost their lives invading japan uh, including my grandfather, who fought, uh, who fought in the Pacific Islands, he was slated to invade Japan. So he wouldn't be here. He wouldn't have been here, and I wouldn't have been born. That's just, just how it is. J was Japan defeated? Regardless, yeah, but they, you know, they weren't going to surrender without us invading. So the bomb dropping was terrible but a solution that probably took less lives now that being said later on in the movie after the bomb drops oppenheimer kind of you know mulls over the uh things he's been hearing about how the war was largely over japan was already defeated they they just dropped the bomb on a defeated nation probably yeah that doesn't mean he still didn't save American GI lives, but yeah, no, he probably did uh, drop a bomb on uh, a nation that was already beaten. Mm -hmm. And as such, he felt later on that there was blood on his hands. And he told us the Truman who, who played brilliantly by Gary Oldman, um, and Gary Oldman, he's only in that one scene. Blew <laughs> my mind. <laughs> I got him for just that one scene. And he knocked it out of the park. And he leans in. He takes the handkerchief out of his pocket. I love this. And he kind of waves it at Oppenheimer. He said, do you think the Japanese care who made the bomb? I'm the one who dropped it on them. You know, he was taking the flack for it. He was the one responsible for it. Mm -hmm. It was it was interesting because even Strauss said, you know, I'm the one who helped Oppenheimer get known for Trinity, not Nagasaki and Hiroshima. So he should be thanking me. Mm -hmm. To which the aide replied, well, he's not. <laughs> and, um, man, the moral quandaries in that. Uh you, you know, I just I'm just glad that presented, you know, two different modes of thought. And. Take it, the audience, you do with that what 
you will as you get more wound up in the anxiety of this picture. Mm -hmm. And I feel like they also explore like at the end of the day, I, I, I don't know if I could say Oppenheimer is a very selfish individual or if he's not, because I mean, he, like he takes a lot of credit for that, but then he also has, you know, his, his moral dilemmas with that. But then there's also the, you know, was he really the one responsible or is he just owning something that he only partially helped with? And, and there's some moments throughout the film where he's like, I, I didn't do a whole lot in this. And then he'll say, this is on me. Like, this is, this is my, fault well it it's interesting because i don't think one of the most fascinating things about this particular protagonist is he's not exactly a great person he's an important right. person but i mean let, let's get it out of the way he, he's a cheater he's a womanizer he's uh you know it could be it could be definitely insinuated from this movie that he definitely put work or his enthusiasm for uh quantum physics over you know family mm -hmm. <sighs> is he selfish or not it's an interesting question yes and no right it's probably the best answer because he you're right he does flip-flop a lot he is uh he, he's one of the most complex character nolan characters nolan has has put together in that we he, there, there's no like the movie he's not very linear right in terms of his thought he goes back and forth. He bounces. He can't answer questions. You know, when he's being berated at the very end, right before he says, I started having um, moral doubts about this when I realized these weapons would be used for war. Uh, he can't give a candid answer to the Grey Council. You know, it's... He clearly had a hard time understanding himself what he thought <laughs> and right ah it 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 just adds a layer of dimension to a an already interesting character simply because he's the man who uh headed this project right so now to go on a little bit of a, a lighter note here we have a comment from thomas bicknell why is Alden, Alden, I always butcher his last name, Enrich on the right, and why is he reviewing his own movie? Gosh, Jay. <laughs> well, uh, man, I don't think people would find out. I'll tell you why. <laughs> because I'm just that damn good looking in the movie, and I really want to sell the film a little bit more. So I can get jobs where I actually play a character that has a name. <laughs> uh, 
That was the best response you could have given. And I also really want to do Solo 2. I don't know if I would want you to do Solo 2. I don't want to do Solo 2. That was a lie. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, you know, I appreciate that this movie is not... Nolan offers a ton of questions and gives some answers, but also leaves the film a lot to to interpretation, like you said. And he doesn't... It's a movie that shows and it doesn't tell, which is something I I appreciate because there's a lot of movies that will tell you, Mm -hmm. but they won't show you. Mm -hmm. And... You know, there's a lot of both. It does. And, you know, Oppenheimer, you know, obviously the bomb is the main, like, overarching thought. Event, maybe? Is that event? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. But the bomb is only really, I mean, it, it, it's what's driving the plot. Yeah, is is the development of the bomb, but the bomb itself is only maybe ten minutes of the film. Mm-hmm. I think it's more that the conclusion of the bomb is what is where the themes really come in, and the movie, or at least the movie, finds its theme, right? Because. Yeah, he makes the bomb. Yeah, the movie is largely about him putting uh, a town together for the Manhattan Project and, you know, Project Trinity and all that stuff. But what does it all mean once it's all said and done? Right. And again, that that's, uh, lands a slam dunk in the last two three seconds of the movie and we we probably need to go ahead and get it <laughs> so before we do that okay. there there's only one thing i'm like, scratching i'm i'm i'm, I'm like oh, we gotta get answers there there so we've talked about the sound we've brought mm-hmm. up the score we've brought up the acting and the story now there's one thing that i love about this film that nolan did that created such an such a real experience and that's the fact that this film doesn't feature cgi yeah and and that damn <laughs> like everything that the film shows is 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 real and he uses techniques to get those shots and it it only adds to the realistic aspects of the film and grounds it so that when the theme finally comes in, that it, it really hammers home. I think Nolan has usually been pretty resistant against CGI, not resistant, but he prefers practical work because he believes um, 
the lack of polish in practical work gives off a more natural feel and uh, chaos that digital effects can't really convey because it's all very planned. It's all extremely directed and whatnot. This isn't to say he didn't use um, plenty of CGI and like Inception or uh, some shots in the Dark Knight trilogy, but even in those instances, he still tried to use practical effects as much as possible. Uh, for example, in Dark Knight Rises, the thing that Batman flies in, they actually built, you know, a life-size one of those, and they had it dangling from some wire going down uh, uh, streets and whatnot. Obviously, they had to CG some shots of it. Obviously, they used digital effects to clean up, clean the wires out of there and stuff like that, but... He he prefers his actors and his staff to react to something that's actually there. In mm -hmm. uh, Tenet, he was very resistant against CGI as well. He actually did um, roll a 747 into a building. <laughs> um, but here, it's it's even more difficult, I think, to do that here because we do see visions of missiles flying through the air and a quantum universe which is just light particles and whatnot and we see explosions multiple explosions and we see the the planet earth burning you know and you sit there going no cgi Whoa! and and I know he's, I haven't read up on it. I know he's given away some of the secrets. I, I also know that a lot of the effects were done on kind of a microscopic level mm -hmm. um, through chemicals and whatnot. And I'll say that it reminded me of the film The Fountain. Have you heard of that film by Darren Aronofsky? I think I've heard of it. Okay. I The Fountain is another one of those movies that left me with, you know, dragging my jaw behind me as I exited the theater. Uh, not a lot of CGI in that either. A lot of it is done, you know, under a microscope to convey the special effects and whatnot. And I got a similar sensation with that here as well. And it was just so effective and so good to see again because it just felt and looked different. And I'm one of those audience members, you know, everyone's like, a lot of people like, oh, he just hates CGI. It's not so much I hate CGI, it's just I'm, I'm kind of tired of looking at it because it's all it all kind of looks the same. Right. You know, you, the human eye at this point can detect when something is CGI and we overuse it to such an extreme level. That just gets exhausting to see weekend after weekend after weekend after weekend. Um it's 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 become less of a tool and more of a kind of like fast food answer to special effects right you know there are other ways to do this but it's much quicker and more efficient and more reliable if we do it this way so that's how we're going to do it and they do it and here we have i i'll say it an auteur who is 
determined to create these visuals a different way because he believes it looks different and it feels different and oh he's right and you know what for as few special effect shots that are in this movie i you know i don't care about the the academy awards i haven't watched them in years at this point i couldn't tell you what won last year but it would be hilarious to me, absolutely hilarious, if in uh, the 2024 award show, a movie won for special effects with no CGI. I would <laughs> think that's... I, I'd be laughing. That's all I'll say. And I'm... I'm I, don't, I don't particularly care if it happens or not, because again, like I told you over the phone... I think more people will remember this movie than most movies that get nominated or win plenty of awards. Absolutely. So now we're we're getting close to two hours, and I I feel like two hours is kind of a good stopping point, and I feel like we have plenty of time here to talk about something that I didn't expect. And that was what Nolan did for the ending. So while... So in the movie, Oppenheimer visits Einstein to show him some calculations that prove Einstein wrong. If I remember correctly. Am I correct? Are you talking about the... Uh atmospheric the, ignition part yes the paper. yeah he showed einstein the atmospheric ignition um math that said if they launch if they detonate this thing it could set fire to the atmosphere and when einstein and oppenheimer meet again with strauss you know trying to get oppenheimer to join the security uh would that be the security cabinet technically no, the AC, the the uh, atomic, um, AEC. Yeah, AEC. That's it. Yeah, atomic yeah. energy uh, committee, right? Committee. Yeah. Yep. Okay. The AEC. When uh, again, Strauss I've only seen trying... it three times. <laughs> when Strauss is trying to get Oppenheimer to join the AEC, Einstein is out, just kind of enjoying life, uh, in nature, and Oppenheimer walks up to Einstein, and this is all in the beginning of the movie. Yeah. Now, we don't see or hear what they say, but we've brought up how Einstein does or doesn't look at Strauss after their interaction, and Strauss thinks it's about him. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, when we get the statement, maybe they didn't talk about you, maybe they're talking about something more important, it finally tells you what they talked about. And Oppenheimer went up to Einstein and, and basically said, remember that, that paper I showed you? Did you feel like that was essentially the end of the world? Like that paper? Yeah, that paper. Do you remember those calculations that said if we launched this thing, we could destroy the world? And Einstein replies, uh, yes, what about it? And I feel like I'm stealing your thunder here. Do you no, want to go ahead? Something? Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, and then, and then Oppenheimer says, 
I think we did. And then Einstein, um, <laughs> incredible, incredible performance by, um, oh shoot, who played Einstein? It was actually a, um, fairly well-known actor, Tom Conti. That's it. Tom Conti played Einstein, and his face—he wasn't even smiling. He wasn't even, his face just droops like complete and utter, you know, I think we did destroy the world. And Einstein just, and then he walks past Strauss. And that was the face he had at the very beginning of the movie when he walked past Strauss. And Strauss thought, oh, he made, he made Einstein hate me. No. No. It was something more important. It was the realization that they had officially went somewhere they can't come back from. Mm. And then from here, we get footage of, of Oppenheimer's visions of, of being on that jet and seeing the other jets fly past him from the uh, window of, mm -hmm. of the cockpit. And then we get the sequence of in the clouds, these missiles flying into the air. And then it cuts to a sequence of the world burning. And when you told me that this movie made you fear living on, on, on a planet where these, these weapons exist and, and kind of made you rethink and, and kind of made like Godzilla 54 hit deeper. And you've even posted on, on Twitter uh, how, how things hit a little harder. I was not expecting Nolan to... to go to world domination but that is the Apocalypse. end like and anytime anytime somebody's talking about nuclear weapons and, and nuclear war it ends in that fear of if that were to happen and einstein said it if world war three were to happen world war four would be fought with sticks and stones because can't go back that is that is a weapon of mass destruction that has the power to annihilate the world and you you've said it like the thought that we live on a planet where those exist like if if somebody gets trigger happy and hits the red button that could be it like that is a fear that it's hard to fathom but this movie articulates that that fear and it's it's a fear that our kaiju movies like gojira the japanese understand yeah and not just you know not just Godzilla. i think i also mentioned like terminator right or something right. or you know it just it, it's it, it it makes it a little more real um, because everyone said, you know, there's, a, there seems to be this overarching thought that no one's insane enough to start world war three, you know, um, I don't, 
<laughs> I don't have that at, at quite as much confidence given some of the world leaders uh, we've had in recent <laughs> years and are still in power. Um, listen, I'm, I'm a uh, collegiate coach and I had a, uh, I had a guy on my team who is part of like the ROTC and he had to leave the team because he was going to be a part of the ROTC. And when uh, the whole stuff in Russia started taking off, uh, he said, you know, he told me, you know, there's an, there's a chance I may be fast tracked to be deployed. He's a kid. I don't want him deployed. I don't want any of my, my kids deployed and fighting in something that might just end up with a bunch of missiles incinerating the world. Um, and so that this last year has been kind of real for me facing, facing the fear that, you know, I could, I could lose genuinely lose some people I care about to morons in power who don't have the foresight to understand they could ignite something much larger. And then, you know, art is such a powerful thing when it reaches you. Everyone says art is subjective, but very rarely does anyone say um, art is for the individual. Art, specific art will touch different people in different ways. And I get to the end of this movie, and the reality of Oppenheimer's fear has never seemed more realistic to me than it is today when listening to um, athletes I work with that are a part of the military. And so I watch this glimpse of a scene where the earth is on fire. I think it was, it was a, uh, it was supposed to be atmospheric ignition at the tail end that we saw. We saw two things. We saw the earth and like multiple nukes going off. And then we saw the earth and then a firestorm covering the globe. Uh, as messed up as things are in the world, <laughs> you know, if, if we, if we go down the path that Oppenheimer fears in this particular film, we are definitely going to wipe the slate clean with those problems. So, you know, there's a choice now, you know, we, we either, you know, we figure it out. We fix it or we we can go down that road and uh take a gander at what the stone age looks like for any survivors and it, it just felt very real um I, I wonder, you know, from the personal experience that affected me, I wonder if it contributed to what Oppenheimer, to what Nolan was doing with the ending of Oppenheimer. But I still feel that even if I didn't have that experience, I would uh, still have that fear. 
I would still be imbued with that uh, that terror of the image of the world on fire. Right. And it one wrong move from one stupid person, and and that's what it looks like. Right. So this movie. <sighs> It, it ended on on a perfect note, you know. It ended on a perfect note. It ended. It, we 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 get we keep hearing what Oppenheimer wants to do. We keep he, we keep seeing what he's trying to do and what he fears and whatnot. But nothing, you know. It was the perfect pin, in the cap to to really ram home just what was causing all of that anxiety in him. And the look on Einstein's face, I like to think that he was he was envisioning what we saw visually as he walks by Strauss. Because what what really is that? Is it is it something Oppenheimer is imagining? Is it a future that we've yet to get to? Is it a dream? Is it uh, just an ex ex of the film giving off a warning, and maybe the characters aren't thinking about that? doesn't really matter i don't think i think what matters is that the possibility exists and the character's fear is real mm -hmm. and that i don't know if any film i can think of in recent years has been able to get something that real across in a long time right so and you know what you just said kind of it kind of reminds me of a a quote from from a certain movie about fear and, and reality and and what that could bring um, i'm trying to pull it up so i can get it exact i i think you know where i'm going um, with this, or maybe you don't. I'd like to hear the quote. Um, uh, I'm trying to. So this this is in in context. It's from a Godzilla movie. Um, but I feel like who can replace Godzilla with with the bomb? And I mean, it's supposed to like Godzilla is the bomb. So I feel like this kind of works. You have your fear, which might become reality, and you have Godzilla, which is reality. And in a way, that's you you have the fear of of nuclear of a nuclear apocalypse, which might become reality, and you have the bomb, which is reality. And and the bomb could lead to that fear which could become reality so next time i i and i part of me is is ex i'm happy that i watched oppenheimer um before minus one because and, and i'm not gonna make the joke i'm not gonna make the joke i'm not gonna make <laughs> like i i i'm not gonna yeah do that. i'm already sick of that one too but 
minus one is going to be a it's in direct response to that to what to what oppenheimer is talking about to, to, to what the fear is the fear of nuclear war and and we're gonna see kind of that perspective from from the japanese in in, in that time period where japan was zero from that you know japan is the only is the only country to have civilians killed by a-bombs and h-bombs and and we haven't even talked about how oppenheimer does have the discussion of of h-bombs that is true yeah i mean that's it, it is an important distinction that oppenheimer created the a-bomb yes um but somewhat opposed the h-bomb or they're called supers in in the film and i do think people tend to forget that the japanese were japanese citizens have been killed by both yes uh, and that's that was the huge part of of 54 was the lucky dragon number no. 5 incident the incident where japanese fishermen were in, were were irradiated by the castle bravo testings on march 1st and they passed away from that and, and that caused a huge international turmoil because japanese critics were saying why this like why is it japanese citizens are being killed once again by these weapons of mass destruction and and it caused a lot of friction and in the film you see the beginning of of the h-bomb because the, the, i'm pretty sure aren't they represented by the two fishbowls in that meeting where the tiny wine glass is the a-bomb and the huge fishbowl is the h-bomb am i am i correct with that no it was it was they they had uh one was plutonium gotcha gotcha and the other was something else it was like how much they were manufacturing at the time to put into their current bomb okay or gadget but they they do make it very clear that the h-bomb is way more powerful and and could cause way more yeah and it was, it was i believe i think it was teller who proposed the idea of a hydrogen bomb instead of an atom bomb everyone laughed him off um and oppenheimer suggested that there are too many issues in making it work but of course it did end up working um i just think he wanted to kind of steer away from that he said it was poor use of our resources more a better use of our resources should be toward um uh arms control yeah. but instead we got an arms race right now eventually we, we we did get to a point where arms control was a thing there uh was a it was an act i believe passed by nato that it was the countries with nuclear warheads had to decommission them and it was something that um ha has been a development primarily between america and russia the the two super powers of of the world that have you know just stockpiles of nuclear warheads right and it was it was actually a 
was it before? No, it had to be after. I believe it was after the the Tsar Bomba. I think uh, so. Russia's Russia's, you know, the largest hydrogen bomb detonation in history. Um, so powerful, so large that there's still you know ice you know uh, in Russia that's irradiated near Alaska. Uh, some places are still uninhabitable. It was exploded in the air. This thing was massive. And what's even more terrifying about this is initially, I think, don't quote me on this, I, I'm pretty sure it was supposed to be even more powerful. They, they cut the power in half before detonation. I watched like two, three hours of like the, the uh, declassified stuff, much of which is just them loading it and, you know, you know, staff involved and flying the plane and whatnot, but it was still, it was still jarring to watch, especially when the clouds light up. And it was, it was just so powerful. It was so violent that that's when, uh, I believe the UN said, okay, no more, no more tests. This is, it's getting out of control and you're going to kill us all. <laughs> Uh, and that, that one was terrifying. That was, I sometimes can't believe I'm going to admit this. I will watch atomic tests on like YouTube and stuff like that. Basically just to frighten myself because they are, they are, I mean, how, how did we get away with making this stuff? And that's again, what this movie is about. And, and I like in the movie how, how they relate the bomb, the atom bomb and, and all the atomic bombs to Prometheus giving men fire. Men fire, right. And that comparison was really... I, I, I really appreciated that. And, and I like that because I feel like that's Oppenheimer. And they say you're the new Prometheus. The, the American Prometheus is what they call yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was... and, and like knowing... And I'm pretty sure, don't they include the quote of Prometheus gave men fire in, in the beginning? That's the very beginning, yep. So the fact that that they they tied that off at the end with with that statement mm-hmm. kind of made it even more impactful. The fact that he he basically did mm-hmm. he he gave man a new a new fire that would burn everything in existence to to kind of quote final wars. <laughs> But I mean that I've always thought about that in, in that movie. There, in the dub at least, there is that line of "man made a huge fire," you see, and it burned everything mm-hmm. in existence. And this movie really like puts that into perspective, like how that could happen. And I, you know, you said you 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 told me on that phone call you might not be able to watch films that that you know include the atomic bomb the same way anymore, right? And right. and like. That line now means so much more. Like mm-hmm. there is Nolan has defined the fear of of, of nuclear weapons to the modern audience that I think Mar- we have yeah. lost. Yeah, because I, I I and I've argued this point. So as as somebody who has grown up in this in this twenty first century. We have never had the fear of 
a bomb going off. There used to be, um, there used to be the, you know, in in schools they would teach you to like duck and cover because they're an atomic bomb, and and they had bomb shelters. That doesn't exist anymore. There is no longer the fear of nuclear weapons, nuclear war. That has disappeared for the most part. Now, I, I remember in like seventh and eighth grade, there was the fear of, of North Korea and what they were doing with their missiles and and, and, and that that fear. But it, it kind of disappeared. Like I as at least for me, like I I don't I remember that being very, very much a topic in about seventh grade, but by eighth grade it was like it's over. Like there's nothing to fear. But at any moment that could happen. And I, I remember, and I believe it was 2020 when when Ukraine and Russia started that that problem, that fear came back. But it also feels like as as time has gone on, the reports and, and the fear of that has disappeared as well. Even though it's still happening, there are still issues. Yeah, it's it's. You know, the news is only going to report what's hot. Right. at the moment right uh you know people have said we we've exited the atomic age and entered the digital age the atomic age never went anywhere right. uh I, I liken it to the line in shin godzilla where they say uh man we're quoting godzilla a lot here uh i guess that makes sense but the in shin godzilla when they said a uh, post-war lasts forever the atomic age ain't going anywhere it's still here. And I think uh, this movie, I don't think it shows or says why. I think it gives us an experience as to why. Mm-hmm. It, it, it makes us feel why. And that's hard to do. Right. That's hard to do. So props to this movie and the filmmakers. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think this film, while it's, it's a period piece, it takes place you know, hard in the early 40s, early to mid 40s. And then later on in, in the 60s, correct? Or late 50s. The trial specifically. The 50s, yeah. 50s, okay. It's very much established over over 70 years ago. The films... Oh, wait. Late 50s, early 60s. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. It, it, some of it probably is the 60s. Now that I think about it. So the fact that that is still relevant is horrifying. We, we Like you said, we have never moved out of that. There are world powers that that could bring that back tomorrow like we we, and like you said that is the fear of like the the dumb people who run the world could could bring that that back tomorrow like they could bring it back the moment the stream ends they could bring it back right now like that is that is a fear that may never go away because Oppenheimer gave us that whether he really he definitely realized it after the fact but 
there's no going back. Once I'm trying to remember there. I want to say it might've been in the Godzilla movie, but it was the establishment of once that power is here, it can never go away. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? I feel like I'm about to think of what it is, but it was the thought of now that this, it was Destroya, Godzilla versus Destroya, how they bring up micro oxygen mm -hmm. and how that power is here. And there is no way to take that back. And the oxygen destroyer is kind of, I would say the, the franchise Godzilla franchises atomic bomb. Oh yeah. Like it was, Oh, it was always supposed to be that. And, and destroyer, they, they kind of bring that concept back where it, it can never go away. Right. I think, I think it was Dr. Uh, Yijun, I believe, who says like micro oxygen has already been unleashed. It's too late. Um, and you know the discussion about what to do with an oxygen destroyer or destroyer. You know they start weighing, you know, which which monster, which device, whatever. Um, will determine the lesser cost of lives not unlike the discussion about you know bombing hiroshima nagasaki and stuff like that so which you know that came during the anniversary of was it the 50th anniversary i think it was the 50th of, anniversary of uh the bombings yes yes it was 1995 yes that would be yeah. 51 yeah 50, that would be yeah 50 um, yeah 50 yeah, 50, 50th anniversary of that. So um, the fact that that movie came out in that year with a discussion kind of similar to that really speaks to some of that movie's strengths and, you know, a reality that, you know, we could we could continue to have that discussion. Right. Today. No, it, it, it And, you know, it's, it's kind of nice that, I, at least for me, I feel like I can now view some of this stuff in, in a different light because now... Now I have been as a modern as a modern audience member. Now I have a better understanding. I've I've understood the fear of the bomb, but I've never truly felt it. And you and I both of it, right? Yes. And and both you and I both said this this is not a movie you watch. It's a movie you experience, mm -hmm. and it it leaves you with something that it's a sour taste. But it's a air quotes good. It's it's it, it's good that it leaves you with the sour taste. Well, yeah, it, I mean, it does its job yes. extraordinarily well. Uh, it does its job. You know, I I have yet to call this um to like I've, I've yet to just say it's a good movie, right? Um, and I've yet to just say it's you know I've yet to rank it or anything like that, and I probably won't because I feel like it's just so transcendent and that you know everything that came along with experiencing it uh it would be reductive to praise or or criticize it with the usual vernacular you would for film discussion and i think that's 
where it comes in. I remember there's some video out there where uh, Christopher Nolan uh, reads. Someone said, my life is like a Christopher Nolan film. I don't really understand what's going on, but I'm here <laughs> for it anyway. And, and someone asked him, what do you say? What would you say to that person? And Nolan said, my advice would be don't try to understand it. Just feel it. pretty good uh <laughs> you know so it's it's i i don't know if it's accurate to say you understand a movie you feel in it but you feel an experience but it kind of sounds like a cool quote so i'll say it um i think what oppenheimer do does uh, we probably won't get that out of another movie for a long time. Yes, I agree. And I hope as I continue to struggle, um, finding the correct vernacular to describe it, I hope we eventually land on an agreeable word or phrase to pinpoint just how effective this movie is in igniting um, emotion and discussion. So I'm going to catch up on, on the chat here a little bit. Okay. And then um, if you want to, we can go ahead and wrap up with overall basic thoughts. I, I feel like, yeah. I feel like it's hard to summarize it all. And then we'll, we'll wrap up with our, our plugs and, and call it, call it here. I feel like we've, we we we've went in some some deep deep holes here. And, yeah, I didn't expect that. I was, <laughs> and you know we, I, and and anybody who lis who's listening to this, I, I I do want to establish. I I don't mean any anything about comparing Godzilla and bringing Godzilla up. It's just that we are kaiju fans, and it's nice to see the symbolism in these kaiju movies that for me seems a little more clear now with this better understanding nolan did a great job showcasing to a modern audience how all of this impacts the world to me so with that i'm going to catch up on on our on our comments here and then we're gonna we're gonna go ahead and wrap things up here so nathan marchand is is in the chat Hi guys, Prometheus was a stated symbol, but you also had the apple at the beginning that was poisoned and could be a symbol of the forbidden fruit in Eden that imparted knowledge of good and evil. That's actually a very interesting comparison that I had never really thought of. I think, you know, uh, the reason Prometheus was chosen as a more direct correlation to Oppenheimer is simply because of the... Uh, the connection something that fire uh, that that fire has to the the bomb and is right. its effects uh you know the the one thing we didn't mention about the prometheus quote was that prometheus was uh condemned to hell and tortured for all eternity for giving fire to man and um Oppenheimer kind of has his own damnation. Yeah. Mentally. Yeah. 
Mm -hmm. which which is you know that that's something that you know he 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 never came back from Mm -hmm. and so we we actually never brought up how at the end einstein tells oppenheimer that you know they they will hate you but eventually they will praise you for what you've done and and we see into the future where oppenheimer's yes. accepting is that a purple heart i think it's not a purple heart purple heart would be i believe uh if he was injured in the line of duty okay um i want to say it was uh the nobel priest prize but i don't think it was it was the oh oh oh, oh here it is the enrico fermi award a scientific award um given by the president of the united states honoring scientists of international stature for their lifetime achievement in development use or production of energy okay this would factor and you know it, it it's an interesting like because the whole film we we follow the trial and, and trying to put Oppenheimer in this negative light this he's the villain he's he he doesn't deserve it what what he like what he did isn't enough and and mm-hmm. and and they try to really put him as as the villain but as time goes on. They forgive him. They forgive him. But and they forgive him for themselves. Right. They wouldn't stand up for him when he needed it. Just to make themselves feel better, just like Einstein predicted. And I want to say that was there's another movie that kind of follows that where it's like before you fall, they will love you, but when mm-hmm. when you fall from grace, you're nothing to them and i'm trying to remember what movie that is because kind of sounds like a dead poet society quote but i'm not entirely sure that's accurate <laughs> i i don't i don't remember but but i know there's a movie that that they bring that up where when like if you fall from grace you're they will turn your backs the movie's starting to get clear in my head oh my god i know this movie they will turn they're back on you the moment they can. Or no, maybe maybe it's an Eminem song. It's an Eminem song. <laughs> it's uh uh there's there's an Eminem song where he he says like once once they turn yeah once they turn on you they they're never coming back. And and that's that's kind of true. That's kind of true. But in this case, you know, they eventually forgive him. But I, I love how his wife doesn't forgive them. And she mm-hmm. refuses no. to shake their hands. That I loved that. And, and they linger on that. They linger on that to show, like, they never, she never forgot what they did. She never forgot. And at the same time, it's interesting. She didn't think this would happen either. Because she told Oppenheimer, do you think if they tar and feather us, feather you, that eventually they'll forgive you or praise you. They won't. And he's like, we'll see. Um, 
so yeah no it it's it's very interesting how how they they tackle that subject um jumping back in here into the the messages i lived through the, nathan also said i lived through the tail end of the cold war but i don't remember feeling afraid i was too young and that's kind of where yeah. i came from is like i i by the time i was born the cold war was you know history and so to me like that that never really was something that... right and i i lived through a little bit of the cold war too but it, it was never mm. <laughs> it just it was a thing that happened and and yeah you know. i think i think in the 50s when nuclear you know uh tests were happening 50s and 60s when nuclear tests were happening and whatnot uh there was probably a stronger fear of it happening because it was so new and fresh at the time you know and the cold war continued on all the way through these other like um important events and conflicts in history i mean you got the vietnam war as well but we were still in the middle of the cold war as that was going on but you know you mentioned that you know the the news hasn't been talking too much about russia lately even though it's still happening and whatnot well it's got it's the same thing you know the cold war ended up being less cool after so many years right it, it only really popped back up into uh public perception when it was all starting to wrap up and even then i was too you know self-absorbed to care about what was going on in that so i didn't nothing i was nothing i remember right um nathan also said the ending struck him there's the term again struck yeah uh, i'd never thought of the chain reaction that ignited the atmosphere being a metaphor for the for the, for the atomic age as it spreads that's that's actually a good idea like as it as as you know atomic energy and atomic weapons and you know what i still that ending it, it one of the reasons it haunts me is it is it just in his head is it a dream is it a future where maybe we actually do ignite the, the atmosphere or is it just a metaphor for you know the spread of nuclear power and weapons it yes to all maybe i don't know it but the fact that you know we we ask these questions and you know we wonder and consider it is so important and again effective you know we've we've overused that word plenty but it is and then nathan also echoes godzilla versus destroyer brings up the chain reaction from the atomic detonation no oh, yeah it does <laughs> And then he also, so he asked us, would you say this is Nolan's magnum ops? I guess that's for me, given yeah. I've seen his full library. Um, my answer would be, ask me again, first of all, when I've kind of come down from the honeymoon period. But at the same time, I'm always hesitant to call anyone's one work their magnum opus because uh first of all you don't know what's going to come next uh and, and second of all i don't want to be reductive to other films that i think are absolutely bangers as well i mean it's 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 just hard to say 
would I would I probably say this is one of Nolan's best movies? Yeah, I can give you that much. I can definitely give you that much. Um, is it his greatest? I don't know. We'll see. Time will tell. I think that's something best left to cinema history than it is to any one person who's uh, seen it three days after it's come out. So to this, I, 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 I'm just going to bring this up. So the Fablemans and Oppenheimer both had a similar effect on me. I've already established that. I'm, I need to watch it again, and, and I'm kind of in a honeymoon phase. But I almost feel like this might be top 10 movies of all time. I, I, I don't know yet. Um, it, it, it has some films to beat. The Fablemans is, is my second favorite film of all time. Um, and, and this kind of left an impact similar to that. So I'm going <laughs> to... It's going to take me a long time to, to figure out where this sits um, for me. Because... This movie, I, I'm going to rewatch this movie. I might go to the theaters this week and watch it again. I'm definitely purchasing it on 4K when it comes out. Um, I would love if if Nolan has a commentary. I'd, I'd love to hear him talk about this movie. I wanna, he won't. He won't. He does he, won't. he not do commentaries? He doesn't do commentaries. Oh, that's the and here's and here here's why here's why he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to take out, uh, take away from the magic of these films. He, he doesn't want to take away from our own thoughts on the films either. And um, I've thought the same thing, but again, this is, this is a filmmaker who trusts his audience almost to a fault. And I think, you know, if, if Nolan were sitting here, watching this live stream and us two talking about his film like this he would be he, i mean any filmmaker would love that but i think he especially would love it simply because this is exactly what he wants his movies to do is to be functional without a commentary and people saying things that he may or may not say right. in a commentary for it that's true so, you know, I, as somebody who has not watched a lot of Nolan's filmography, this, this movie hit harder than I ever thought it would have. Um, like, thinking about it, like, Tetsuo the Iron Man is another movie that I remember sitting there thinking, this changed my life. And and Oppenheimer, I think, did something similar. So it, you know, it's, it's gonna. Honestly, this this definitely will probably hit top ten for me. I mean, it's not the it's not the first Nolan movie to do that for me. And I I told you the other night that Nolan, um, I got into Nolan back in two thousand one when he uh, when Memento came out before he was cool. <laughs> Before he was cool, yeah. Um, when when Memento came out, and I walked out of the theater, and I can't to this day I can't believe I said this out loud, but I was with friends, and I I just you know, it was one of those I'm thinking out loud moments, and I just spouted out loud. That's one of the best movies I've ever seen. 
Um, and I, I was also in a very different place at that point in time, too. I think a lot of the themes, fairly nihilistic themes, uh, in there really had a vice grip on me. But so many years later, I mean, I go back to it, I watch it, and I'm just like, man, this is such a fantastic film. Once again, non-linear storytelling and black and white and color uh, film and uh, an ending that hits hard. And, you know, in some ways he, he, he hasn't changed that much, but in other ways he's also matured a lot as well. Mm -hmm. and now has the latitude to do a lot more and whether you like uh, whether you like the dark knight movies or not you have to appreciate that it gave him the ability to have that kind of latitude right uh, that that kind of to my understanding that's what shot him into kind of yes stars yes uh I, I would say so and i i think you know i i really do think that if you you probably go through his library starting with the following if you go through his filmography one by one, you would probably end up appreciating. Uh, yes, I, I just brought that up. <laughs> um, you would probably end up appreciating what he ended up doing in the dark and I a little bit more and how his filmmaking had progressed over years and whatnot. Um, Cause I think you'll probably end up, I can, I can understanding like someone who hasn't seen a lot of Nolan films, watching the dark knight movies and probably comparing them more so to the superhero genre at present essentially and not a nolan crime drama or a nolan war picture or something of that uh likeness which is what i kind of follow along into when i went to see those movies is is that the dark knight movies weren't really comic book movies they were an extension of this filmmaker's evolution so as pretentious as that sounds i mean i can't be too pretentious i've been we've been talking about nuclear horror and i'm here chomping down on peanut m&ms so <laughs> um but i really do think you would enjoy his filmography especially his the evolution leading up to oppenheimer and I, for one, once again, cannot wait to see what his next project is. So with that, I, I feel like I feel like that's kind of our, I mean, we've been sitting here for two and a half hours. Yeah. And and I feel like we've we've kind of I mean, I, I, I dove into this way more than than I thought um, I would. I'm kind of happy I was able to formulate some of the thoughts that when I saw this, I, I had, I, I just kept telling Rick's I've just seen cinema. I've just watched film. Like I, I, I couldn't fathom what I had just seen. Um, so it, it, I'm happy that I'm, I'm able to sit here now and, and be able to formulate kind of, kind of the thoughts that, I mean, I felt like Oppenheimer in the moment of, I saw the quantum realm, but to me it was, I'm seeing a masterpiece. You know, film film is something very near and dear to me. So while watching it, I felt like my eyes were wide open. I was just staring at the screen, just taking in something that would leave an, an impact on me that I, I didn't expect. So, 
you know, it's I, I'm probably still in the honeymoon phase, like you. Yeah. And that's okay. That's okay. And I'll come down from it, but I don't see it even coming out of it. Normally when I'm in the honeymoon phase, I can tell where I'm heading, you know? Mm -hmm. I don't see myself wavering too much from my current opinion. Right. And and I'm I'm in the same boat. I, I, I don't see myself changing my views. Um this this was a I this is a great movie. Like that, if if I have to sum up my thoughts in, in like a sentence, this is a great movie. Um, I think my only thought is that, you know, I don't want to parrot Nolan's word. Don't words don't uh, don't think about it too hard. Just feel it too much. But I I and someone once said, "Man, you really just have to experience it." I know that's cheesy to say, but it really is. You just have to experience it. I'm like, I don't think it's cheesy at all. I think it is an experience. And I think that this is a film. This is the reason I, I fell so in love with film. And I think part of me had kind of forgotten that. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily. Not necessarily because films are just so bad these days but largely because so many of them kind of look and feel the same mm -hmm. and this just this really had everything that i love about movies in it this it shows the power of cinema and i mean it it shows that like the the art form as an art form can still um, make an impression for me. Right. And I only hope I don't have to wait so many years to experience something like it again. Yeah. That's, that's a good note to end on. Yeah. So after two hours and 40 <laughs> minutes, <laughs> of of talking about this and, and diving in for anybody who's been watching thank you for for listening to us um kind of dive into like the the madness in in our heads about about this movie and 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 what it did um and for anybody who's been listening thank you for listening um i i hope i hope for the ones who have seen it i hope you enjoyed it as much as we did um, if you didn't, I, 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 I don't necessarily agree, but we um, pity you. Yeah, <laughs> we do. Um, so I, I'm, I'm grateful for, for being able to have this opportunity, Jack, to, to sit down with you after watching it and, and being able to, to really just talk about what this movie means to us in, yeah. in all honesty, that's this, this wasn't necessarily a review. I feel as much as it was how it feels not, not, not necessarily. We how, yeah. Yeah. We gushed over it, which is fine. You know, I remember one time I was, I, I, I was listening to a podcast on slash film in 2008 and uh, Kevin Smith was the guest star 
on the Slash Film Podcast. It was about the Dark Knight. And uh, the, the people running the podcast was like, okay, well, let's start with uh, the synopsis and we'll go over the actors. I mean, and Kevin Smith chimes in. He goes, man, let's forget about the synopsis. Let's not talk about who's in it. Let's just talk about how much we love this movie, man. Let's just go. I mean, and honestly, it made for the more interesting review or discussion. And I hope I think I think in gushing over it, we've touched on things that are worthwhile, mm-hmm. maybe even a little personal. And that's that's more real than some reviews, which tend to checklist themselves. So well, the acting was good and the effects were good and the writing was not as good, but also, good. you know, just things like that don't yeah. don't do anything for me. So. This has been great. Thank you so much for for doing this. I mean, we did a kind of short notice, but we made it work, and and I think we've we've we we did something great here. So, yeah. with that being said, now's the time for you to promote yourself. Okay. And and whatever you do. Well, I am Jack Hudgens. I eat peanut M and M's. You can find them at your local. Uh, Walmart, Target, Bilo, <laughs> Food Lion, Ralph's, and Kroger's. They are 17 grams of car- Oh, jeez. I need to stop. All right. So <laughs> I got to run tomorrow. Um, Jack Hudgens. You can find me on Twitter at Gman of Mysterioid. You can also check out my uh, Substack, which is Deferential Wrath of a Rusting Markalite Cannon at markalite.substack.com. Uh, I was uh, one of the four hosts on the Drift Space, which you can find on all your podcatchers, Spotify, uh, Apple, uh, whatever. We are currently on an indefinite hiatus. When or if it will come back is unknown, but I am also in early discussions of maybe potentially being a part of uh, another in the future. We'll see. I don't know. But uh, I'll let you know when the time is right and when it's right for me. And that's the main thing is that I have to make sure it's, it's, it's right for me. So catch me on all that. All righty. And I'm Elijah Thomas. You can find me on YouTube at ET13Productions, on Twitter at ET13Productions, or on Instagram at ET13Productions. I do have an upcoming short film that debuted at G-Fest titled SOS Seek Shelter that if you're interested, uh, just keep an eye out on the YouTube channel because I will be posting it eventually. Um, And uh, besides that... Uh, you can, if you want to find my personals, you know, you can, you can, you can find them. It's not hard. <laughs> I don't, I don't hide myself like I used to, but as for the podcast, if you'd like to support the podcast and in, in the YouTube channel, don't forget to rate us on iTunes that boosts our ratings and helps us get recommended to more people just like you. If you don't have an Apple device, which I don't blame you, I don't, that's actually very much a lie. This I'm, I'm using a MacBook right now, so. So this mm-hmm. is all that that's a lie. So but you can rate us on Spotify now. Um, we have five reviews. We're at, or six reviews. We're at a five star rating. So thanks to everybody who has left us a review. If you want to stay up to date with all things Kaiju conversation related, follow us on Twitter at K-A-I-J-U underscore C-O-N-V-E-R-S. If you don't have a Twitter, you can follow us on Instagram or like us on Facebook. If you're like me before podcasting and you don't have any social media, 
lucky you, you can email us at kaijuconversation at gmail.com, all lowercase, all one word, you know the drill. And as always, we'll read your reviews on air for everyone to hear. We also have a Teespring store. Eventually, we'll have original artwork on there. But until then, you can sport our awesome logo on a t-shirt or maybe even have it on a coffee mug. If you'd like to chat with actually either of us, you can check out the Discord server for Kaiju Conversation full of others that have similar interests to, uh, to you. It's a great community full of great people. We have some great conversations on there. Don't forget to subscribe to the YouTube channel and hit the bell so you can be notified anytime we upload a video. Sometimes we post uh, mini-sodes or bloopers for the episodes talking about, you know, whatever whatever we have. We also have an interview with, with Mechagodzilla de designer Jared Kruchevsky on the channel. I probably butchered his name and I apologize, but you also have these monthly live streams, Kaiju Conversation Live, a monthly show that is typically not very high energy or or like deep um this episode is is a uh, is a little different from that but it it was something that definitely needed to happen and if you're listening uh this is one of the rare instances where we're going to upload the live streams as a bonus episode so if you haven't already subscribed to our youtube channel so you can watch and listen to all of these because there's there's some really good conversations that come out of the show a huge thanks to Rex for editing all of the episodes and all the other content we upload. His links can be found in the description below. Along with Rex, we'd like to give a huge thanks and shout out to Danny Demana of the Godzilla Novelization Project for his amazing vocals on our theme song. You can support him by following him on Twitter at Danzilla93 underscore GNP or visit his website, GodzillaNovelizationProject.com. And a huge thanks to Grattan Conwell from the podcast Giant Monster BS for composing the music for our theme song. You can support him by following the podcast on Twitter at GiantMonsterBS or on any podcast platform under the name GiantMonsterBS. And with that, we're going to wrap things up here. So thank you guys so much for watching us or listening to us, whichever way you did. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thanks again, Jack, for coming on and, and talking about this movie. It was a ton of fun, and I, I enjoyed it very much. I did too. Thanks so, for inviting me. Always. It's it's always a pleasure to have you on. So with that, I just want to remind everybody to please remember, life's too short to not talk big. Bye, guys.